If a church does not evangelize, it will fossilize. So said A.W. Pink to his congregation in 1926. And this is certainly true for the local church as an institution. And I wonder if it's equally true for an individual Christian. So that it might be said, if a Christian does not evangelize, he will fossilize. May we be found free of such fossilization. May we be found faithful as a church and as individual Christians to evangelize, to call upon our friends, families, neighbors, and co-workers to repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Over the last four months or so, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and I pray that it has helped us to pursue evangelizing over fossilizing, to use A.W. Pink's language. And I think that the passage that we're going to be looking at together this morning, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40, will be especially helpful to us in that endeavor. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage, I believe, beginning on page 917. The book of Acts, if you don't know it, chronicles the ongoing ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ through His disciples by the power of His Holy Spirit. In Acts, we've been watching the church evangelize the lost. And in the very first chapter, Jesus set the program really for the rest of the book. He told His disciples that they would be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. In the first seven chapters of our study, we saw the gospel being proclaimed there in Jerusalem. And then as we began to study Acts chapter 8, we saw the gospel spread to Samaria. This morning, as we continue in our study, really of the second half of Acts chapter 8, we see a man receive the gospel and take it to the ends of the earth. The mission of Jesus continues on. In this chapter, we learn three lessons concerning the spread of the gospel. In Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 31, we learn the evangelistic initiative begins with God. In Acts chapter 8, verses 32 to 38, we learn key ingredients in evangelistic work. And in Acts chapter 8, verses 39 to 40, we learn that evangelistic work increases the joy of others. So for the note takers out there, there are three points this morning. Evangelistic initiative, evangelistic ingredients, and evangelistic increase. Let's begin with point number one, evangelistic initiative. And as, I, as we do, let's follow along as I read Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 31. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 31. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Well, in these verses, we learn that evangelistic initiative begins with God. That it occurs through obedient and bold disciples of Jesus. And that it is especially aimed at those who are outside of the kingdom of God. 
We'll unpack each of those ideas in just a moment. But, but as we pick up our study in verse 26, we need to remember what has just occurred in Acts chapter 8. Philip, he ministered the gospel in Samaria, and after persecution really had, had spread Christians out, out of Jerusalem, and they took the word with them as, as they scattered. And by God's grace, many in Samaria believed the word of God that Philip had been preaching to them. The, the apostles, they, they showed an interest in this uh, belief, in these believers' lives there in Samaria, and they, they went down to see what the Lord was doing there. And after Peter and John had confirmed the work of God in that place, and the Holy Spirit made that evident, they returned to Jerusalem. And you see there in verse 25 of Acts chapter 8, that they continued to preach the gospel to many of the villages of the Samaritans, really on their way back to Jerusalem. Well, just as the apostles moved on there in verse 25, so the Lord God moved Philip on in verse 26, picking up with our text now. This is where we, we see that evangelistic work, it, it begins with God, doesn't it? God sends Philip. Evangelism is God's idea. It's His plan for making His salvation in His Son known to the world. Only God knew where to find this Ethiopian eunuch. So He, he gave Philip specific directions through an angel. This is not something that happens every day. And in fact, what we're seeing here is is really unique to this period in redemptive history. In, in verse 26, the, the angel of the Lord directs Philip to the road, and we see there in verse 29, he directs Philip to the man who needs to be redeemed. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. It's moving, isn't it, to, to think that God has a particular sinner in mind that he wants to save. And so, he sends Philip after him. Christian, think about the fact that your Evangelization and salvation, it began with God. Maybe it was your mom or dad. Maybe it was your college roommate. Maybe it was your Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was your coworker. Whoever it was, make no mistake. If someone went, it's because God sent them. God sent someone after you, and He found you. Give thanks to God for His sovereign, sending, saving love. Evangelistic work begins with God because it's His gracious idea, His gracious agenda, His gracious initiative. Philip, as we know from Acts chapter 8, he had been engaged in public ministry and now he is about to undertake a, a private ministry, isn't he? God may choose to send His service to sprawling cities, but He may also choose to send them to a single chariot. God may be pleased to use you, to send you, to save many, or he may be pleased to use you to save one. Whatever the case may be, your calling in the midst of it all is to be obedient and bold. That's just what Philip was, wasn't he? He was obedient and he was bold. Look at verse 26. The angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go. What do we read of Philip in verse 27? And he rose and went. Philip obeyed, but that was not the last time. Take a look at verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And what do we read in verse 30? We read, so Philip ran to him. Philip's immediate and joyful obedience, it ought to be a challenge to us. We've been given a great commission. If we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been told to go and make disciples of all nations. So are we obeying? Are we going? Are we sharing the good news when we seem to have the strong sense that we ought to speak up and say something? Have you ever had that experience? You're... You're in maybe a conversation or in a room, you feel like, I really need to talk to that 
person about the Lord Jesus. Maybe you've had that, that strong sense. I'm not saying that all of your kind of impulses uh, are necessarily from the Spirit of God, but, but maybe some of them are. I don't know. You, you probably don't know either. And in truth, we, we may not be able to come to a, a firm conclusion about a subjective feeling, but we can come to a clear conclusion about an objective command. Right? In Matthew 20 19, we're told to go and tell. And really, it would be better for us to tell more people more often than not. Let us be obedient to the command to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philip is, is not only obedient, but he's also bold. Think about all of the ways that Philip might have been tempted to fear this man. Right? He's in the middle of the desert, strolling up to what must have been a majestic chariot. Right? This Ethiopian eunuch, he was someone. He was basically the secretary of the treasury for the queen of Ethiopia. He was undoubtedly personally wealthy. Uh, we're, we're not told that he went to Jerusalem to do business, but to worship. And so while it's possible that he went to Jerusalem and did some business while he was there on the queen's behalf, it seems like the main purpose of the trip, according to the text, was to do business with God, to worship the Lord. The implication of the text is also that he wasn't driving his chariot. So he, he probably at least had one servant. He had a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. That could not have been cheap. He could read. So he must have been well educated. Consider the, the boldness of Philip, not only to approach the chariot, but to, to ask, do you understand what you're reading? To a wealthy, powerful, and educated man? Ordinarily, that would have been kind of an insulting question. But it's a bold question from Philip. I mean, imagine as you're leaving the church building here today, walking down the street, hearing someone here in Alcova Heights, wealthy, educated Alcova Heights, reading their Bible. Would you have the boldness to ask, do you understand what you're reading? I mean, what about in your office? Maybe somebody's got a, a Bible on their desk. Or maybe somebody's quietly reading it in Starbucks or a coffee shop. Would you be so bold as to strike up a conversation? Would you be so bold to ask, do you understand what you're reading? We, we shouldn't assume that everyone understands what they're reading. I, in my years of pastoral ministry, I've heard uh, a, a number of times people feel compelled to read the Bible. They open up the Gospel of John or Romans or they're told to read one of those by a Christian. And they, and they read it, and by God's grace, they, they come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that Christian came alongside them in their lives and helped them understand what they were reading. We shouldn't assume that everybody understands what they're reading. Like Philip, we need to be bold and strike up these conversations and see if we can be of some help. And the Lord might be pleased to use us. Brothers and sisters, let us not be intimidated or fearful. Let us be bold. That we serve the sovereign king. And he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus said. In the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we have been commissioned as ambassadors for Christ. And God himself is making his appeal through us. It is our duty to implore the lost on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So let us not shrink back from proclaiming his offer of peace and reconciliation in God's design. Evangelistic work occurs through obedient and bold disciples. That's what we're called to be for the glory of God. We're called to be obedient and bold. And Philip's evangelism to this Ethiopian eunuch it also shows us that evangelistic work is oriented toward those who are outside of the kingdom of God. We might think that this man was 
already part of the kingdom of God. Given the fact that he had gone to Jerusalem to worship, that he was reading scripture, verse 28, you see there. But attendance at public worship and reading the Bible are not the seal of salvation. Let me just say that again. Attendance at public worship and reading the Bible are not the seal of salvation. As we've already been reminded in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yes, this man had gone to the temple to worship, but as the narrative unfolds, it is clear that he has not come to worship the one who is the fulfillment of all of God's purposes in the temple. He is, is not worshiping Jesus, who himself said, destroy this temple and it will be raised again in three days. Jesus is the one through whom we give our worship to God. And this man is, is not yet a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's outside of the kingdom of God. And the fact of the matter is, his experience of kind of public corporate worship in Jerusalem really testified to this fact that he was outside. He, he was an Ethiopian, and, and therefore um, likely a Gentile, given his ethnicity. He was only permitted to go so far into the, the temple complex. There were kind of additional courtyards moving in. Gentiles were only permitted into kind of the outermost courtyard of the temple, often called the, the court of the Gentiles. So when we think of this man going to worship at the temple as a Gentile, we should think of him as standing very far off, even outside the full participation of worship. That court, the court of the Gentiles, was really honestly hardly a place for focused worship. Animals and other items were bought and sold in that court. Uh, it, it was a bank, a zoo, and a marketplace, kind of all rolled into one. Think of the difficulty that this man would have had worshiping the Lord in that environment. I mean, think of the difficulty that you have worshiping God and praying alone at your kitchen table or in this room. It's difficult sometimes to, to focus when there are a variety of distractions occurring. Think of the difficulty that this man would have experienced in his attempt at worship. In a best case scenario, the court of the Gentile was as far as this Ethiopian eunuch could go in. Now, some scholars have suggested this man may have had some Jewish lineage. I think that's probably exceedingly unlikely, but even if that was the case, there was something else keeping him from full participation. He's also a eunuch. A eunuch was a castrated male, and he no doubt experienced some public scorn for his physical condition. Sometimes a man was made a eunuch voluntarily. Other times, becoming a eunuch was an involuntary action. At the end of the day, this man could certainly not father children. And for that reason, in the ancient world, many eunuchs were employed in royal courts. Their physical condition would serve as a guard against romantic involvement with the queen, which every king wanted. While this man's physical condition um, might have served as an added layer of protection for the queen, it stood in the way of his gathering and participating in Israelite worship. The Old Testament law forbid it. So in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, we read this. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. As I said, the best case scenario was that this man was permitted to enter into the outer court of the Gentiles. Maybe he didn't make it in at all. As one commentator said in his case, as a eunuch, full membership in the congregation of Israel was not even possible because of his physical blemish. He could visit the temple in Jerusalem as he had done, but he could never enter it. This man, 
He was seeking the kingdom of God. But apart from Christ, he was outside of it. He had experienced something of that on his way to worship in Jerusalem. And being kept outside of the temple. Maybe he was discouraged as he's in his chariot headed back home. Maybe he's discouraged that his deformity kept him at a distance from the worship of God. The Bible teaches us that apart from Jesus Christ, we're all outside of God's kingdom. It's not our physical defects or deformities that bar us from worship or keep us outside of the kingdom of God. It's our sin. It's our sin. It's our spiritual depravity, our spiritual defects, our our spiritual deformities that mark us out as those outside of the kingdom of God. And the hope of Acts 8 is that no one is outside the reach of God's kingdom. Is that those who are outside can be brought in. God is ready to receive you, to include you into the kingdom of His Son. No matter your spiritual depravity, defect, or deformity. God is ready to receive you in through His Son. You you need not fear your sins if you know the Savior. And the fact of the matter is, is that you need someone to guide you into the truth about Jesus Christ. We, We all do. That's what Philip was there to do. Notice that the Ethiopian eunuch invited Philip up into his chariot to explain what he was reading. Friend, you have this kind of humble attitude. We thought about this in our prayer of confession. Confess it. We often don't have this kind of humility. It's like, I don't know about this. Do you have this kind of humble attitude? And let me just suggest to you that Google is probably not going to be your best friend in this pursuit. Another Christian who opens their Bible and is willing to read it with you will be your best friend in this pursuit. Are you, are you willing to ask, can you help me? Do you have a willingness to learn, to be instructed, to be taught? Invite a mature Christian into your life and ask them to explain the Bible to you. And Christian, recognize that this is the work of evangelism, explaining the Bible. Christian, you are to go to those who do not know Jesus, who do not understand God's plan of salvation, and who are not yet members of God's kingdom. And your calling is to help those outside of Jesus' kingdom find their way in. That's what God wants you to do. It's His idea, His initiative, and He especially wants you to make Christ known to those who are currently outside of His kingdom. At the same time, Christian, I think in light of this text, you you should pause and give thanks to God for those who explain the way of Christ to you more accurately. Give thanks to God for those who are bold and obedient and saw your need for Christ, perhaps even before you saw it. Children, children, give thanks to God for your parents. Give thanks to God that they sit at the dinner table or on the couch or on the edge of your bed and they open up their Bible to you. Give thanks to God that they lead you in family worship. Give thanks to God for your Sunday school teachers and your youth group leaders. This past week, one night when I was tucking my boys into bed, I prayed by name for those teachers who are willing to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Parents, pray for the Sunday school teachers. Pray for them and pray the Lord be pleased to use them so that your children might know Christ. I prayed that God would give my children grateful hearts for these teachers. You should do the same. Christian, give thanks for your pastors and teachers and for those who have discipled you. They are a great gift of God's grace to you. And we ought to give thanks for all of God's good gifts. Well, 
We've seen the evangelistic initiative. It begins with God, right? The Lord sends Philip after this man. It occurs through obedient and bold disciples. That's what Philip was. And that it's especially aimed at those who are currently outside the kingdom of God. Next, in our, our next portion of this passage, we learn that key ingredients in evangelistic work are the contents of Scripture with the Lord Jesus Christ as the, the aim of our proclamation and as well as conversion as an aim for those who we're addressing. So this is what we learn in our second point. The title for that is Evangelistic Ingredients. Follow along now as I read Acts 8, 32 to 38. Acts chapter 8, verses 32 to 38. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him, the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. From these verses, we see that one of the first ingredients in evangelism is Scripture. This is the best possible evangelistic scenario, right? The guy's already reading the Bible. Right? That's exactly what we want. Nevertheless, this is what we want the content of our evangelism to be. It's always what we want the content to be, and, and it's really what we see in the book of Acts. So just, just think through Acts, what we've studied so far. All throughout Acts, when the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, Scripture is being proclaimed. It's the content of the evangelist's message. So back in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, when Peter's preaching, he takes Joel 2 as his text, Psalm 16 as his text, Psalm 110 as his text. And then in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, when Peter urged his hearers to repent so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, he was proclaiming the hope of Isaiah chapter 32, verse 15. And then when Stephen preached to his accusers, he appealed to scriptures such as Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, and Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. All throughout the book of Acts, scripture is the content of the evangelistic message because it's scripture that teaches us about Jesus Christ. And here, the, the disciples, the, the apostles that we're seeing in the book of Acts, they're just following Jesus' own example. Think back to Jesus' ministry. When he wanted to reveal who he was and what he came to do, what, what did he do? He went to the synagogue, he had to pull out the, the scroll of Isaiah, he read from it, and then he explained who he was. From Isaiah 61. It, then in, in Luke 24, Jesus taught his disciples that the entire Old Testament pointed to him. Right? That's why we've been spending so much time in the adult Sunday school class thinking about the Old Testament from a Christian perspective. Christian, there are a number of books out there that are helpful to our personal evangelism. There are a number of books that we can read with our unbelieving friends and family members. We should certainly, can certainly make use of them. But the book that we should make the most use of in our evangelism is the Bible. God is pleased to work through His Word. What do we read in Isaiah 55, 11? We read this. 
so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose for which I sent it and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Well, what about Hebrews 4.12? You remember that passage? Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God works through His word. Just think about the conversion of Timothy. Do you remember what, his, what book his mother and grandmother used? Do you remember how he became wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ? This is what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For Timothy's conversion, God used the Old Testament scriptures. As the Bible reveals, and as our church's statement of faith affirms, this book is the only book that is divinely inspired and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. This book is the only book that has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Brothers and sisters, as we go about the work of evangelism, let us ask our friends and family, neighbors and co-workers, if they will read the scriptures with us. Yes, yes, yes. I know that you have this thing against Jesus, but have you actually ever read a biography of Jesus? We have four of them. Which one do you want to read? Mark is the shortest. You can start there if you like. Or we can go to the longest one. Happy to read any of them with you. Let's invite them to read the scriptures with us and to learn about Jesus directly from the Word. Let's ask them. I know that the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip to read, but we can ask them to read with us too. And ask, do you understand what you're reading along the way? Notice what Philip does here in verse 35. Philip, he opens his mouth and explains the scriptures. Christian, this is what you have to do in order to do evangelism. I'm sure you've heard that terrible expression, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Well, that erroneous teaching has been corrected thousands of times. The truth is, as someone much, much once said, uh, we must preach the gospel, and because it's necessary, we must use words. Brothers and sisters, we have to open our mouths and speak in order to do evangelism. And what is Philip doing here? Reading and explaining the scriptures. Really, that's what we want men doing from this pulpit week in and week out. Reading and explaining the scriptures. We seek to have godly, qualified men stand up and explain the scriptures because we need their guidance in understanding them. And we especially want men beginning with the scriptures and then making a beeline to the Savior. That's what Philip did, wasn't it? Verse 35, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, while we may have to have some apologetic conversations about God, and the creation of the world in the space of six days, we must always remember that in our evangelism, we need to get to Christ. We need to get from the author of creation to the object of salvation, Jesus Christ. Apologetics, defending the faith, is a useful tool in evangelism. But defending the faith is different than proclaiming the one in whom we must place our faith. Christ needs to be the center of our proclamation. For he is the center of the scriptures. And what scripture was this Ethiopian eunuch asking about? 
He was asking about Isaiah 53. We, we read it earlier in the service, but I want you to go ahead and turn there now to, to put your eyes upon it. Uh, this eunuch is likely reading from uh, the, the Septuagint. That would be a Greek translation of the Old Testament text. That's probably why there's going to be just a few word differences there than what he reads uh, in, in Acts chapter 8 and what we look at here in Isaiah 53. But as we thought about earlier, that this, this text, it, it reminds us of this Messiah who's going to come and who's going to suffer on behalf of, of God's people. If you're uh, using one of the Bibles to write, I think that's on page 613, Isaiah 53. I mean, Philip, really, when, when you look about this text, if you remember what we read from earlier in the service, you could have hardly asked for a better text to have an evangelistic conversation from. You know, think about what Philip might have, have shared using some kind of uh, sanctified imagination, right? From verses 1 and 2, Philip might have told him that Jesus lived an unassuming life. This is about Jesus. He lived this unassuming life. That there was really nothing about Jesus' physical appearance that would draw so many to him. And far from being desired, he was despised. If you know the story of Jesus' life, when you were in Jerusalem, maybe you heard people on the street talking about it. Jesus was beaten. He was whipped. He was rejected by his own people. According to verses 4 to 6, Jesus took our griefs. He took, he took our sorrows. He took our transgressions. He took our iniquities. Did, did you know that, dear eunuch? You're a sinner. You have iniquities against God. And this Messiah promised in Isaiah 53, he's Jesus. And on the cross, he, he took them upon himself. Notice that in verses uh, 7 and 8, that Philip, these are the verses that uh, are quoted in Acts 8. They, they predict what the gospel accounts confirm. And Philip no doubt told the eunuch that in his trials and death, Jesus carefully used his lips. One of the most remarkable things about Jesus in the midst of those trials is how careful he was with his speech and words. Under pressure, we so often let things slip out of our mouths, but the Lord Jesus, so perfectly righteous in word, was carefully in control of his lips, revealed his his innocence in his heart, right? Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And all on Jesus' lips were righteous words revealing in his heart he was perfectly righteous. Though he was perfectly innocent, he, he endured unjust trials. When he died, he was, as verse 8 says, cut off from the land of the living. He suffered as our substitute. He was punished for the transgressions of his people, as verse 8 says. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? According to verses 10 and 12, Jesus had to die because God had purposed to make many to be accounted righteous. Verse 11. The holiness, the righteousness, the justice of God required that not only should this servant, his servant, his son be sinless. Verse 9. But that his servant should receive the punishment for the sins of the people. Jesus didn't die because he had sins. No. No. He died because his people had sinned. Those who had, he was representing because they had sinned. They had spiritual depravity. They had spiritual deformity. They had spiritual defects. But God is just and so he, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And so that the transgressions of God's people received a righteous punishment. A just punishment. A holy punishment in this servant who represents them. This servant is Jesus. For, for the sins of His people, the servant was rewarded with just punishment. He was paid the wages of their sin 
in His death on the cross. But He was also rewarded with something else too. He would be rewarded with an offspring that He would see. Do you see that in verse 10? He'd be rewarded with an offspring that He would see. In other words, He would die. But He would live again. And He would be given the spoils of the victory over death. A people from the nations. You know that? This is the seed of of the woman who would come to crush Satan. He's the son promised to Abraham would be a, a blessing to the nations. Imagine Philip saying this to this Ethiopian eunuch, this Gentile, this Messiah. He's for the nations. He's for, for someone like you. He's for someone like you. He lived again. He was raised from the grave. Don't you think Philip would ask, do you trust this servant, this Messiah? Do you trust in Jesus? Did he bear your sin? Verse 12. I mean, I, I imagine that Philip could hardly contain himself. Here is this man who has been an outcast and an outsider, and Philip, Philip wants him to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And we're told that Philip began with this scripture, and he must have gone on to others. I mean, he probably just said, hey, would you just scroll down to Isaiah 56 for me? Right? Go ahead and go there in your phone or in your Bible. Move over to Isaiah chapter 56. He's saying, look, when, when this Messiah comes, he's going to inaugurate this great messianic kingdom. And there are promises for the nations, promises for people like you. Philip, turn to Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 8. That's on 616 of the Bible's provided. Remember, he's been, this Ethiopian eunuch, he's been shut out of the worship of God in Jerusalem due to his ethnicity and his deformity. And notice what Isaiah promises. You, you can almost hear Philip say, look at God's promises concerning Jesus' kingdom for you, dear eunuch. Who trust in Him. Verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from His people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord Yahweh and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God Yahweh who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares I will gather yet others to Him besides those already gathered. You see what Isaiah promises in the Messianic Kingdom? This eunuch has a place in Jesus' Kingdom. He has a place. He's going to be given a name better than sons and daughters. Joy in the house of prayer. Welcome at the Father's table. No longer shut out. He's been shut out of the temple in Jerusalem, but he's welcome in the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are these precious promises which say, in the kingdom of my son, you are, are welcomed in. In the Messiah, I will accept your worship. I'll accept your worship that you had so much difficulty trying to give in Jerusalem. I'll accept your worship. I'll accept your sacrifice of praise. I'll, I'll make you my adopted son or daughter. 
I'll give you a seat at my table and I'll give you my name. Is there any better news than this? That God, in His grace and love, would accept us, outsiders, outcasts, those who are spiritually depraved and deformed and have a multitude of defects. Is there any greater love and grace than this that God would accept us into His family because of His Son? Friend, it doesn't matter your spiritual deformity, your depravity or defect, whatever it might be. If you come to God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be accepted in. Friend, what... What do you feel like you have that you cannot bring before the Lord? Well, what is your spiritual depravity, your spiritual deformity, your, your spiritual defect? Was it greed? Pride? Lust for the power and praise of men? Do you, do you take what's not been given to you? Do you, do you steal your neighbor's chastity through, through long looks or uh, adultery or pornography or homosexuality? Are you addicted to drugs or alcohol? Are, are you selfish and self-serving and self-centered and self-justifying? Is your spiritual deformity deceit or hypocrisy? Is it, is it covetousness or envy? Is it meddling or, or gossiping? Is it rebellion against authority? What is your sin? This man, he does not remain outside the kingdom of God. And you don't have to remain outside the kingdom of God either. There's a way in. There's no spiritual deformity that Jesus cannot heal. So stop standing outside of the kingdom of God and come in through Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of your sins. Turn from your sins and trust in Him. And the eunuch, you know what he says? He says, yes, I, I want in. I want to go all the way in. Turn back to Acts chapter 8. Hopefully you kept a finger there, but if not, it's on page 917 of the Bible's right. I want you to see how the eunuch asks to go into the kingdom and all the way in to the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Ethiopian eunuch says, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized or literally immersed? He's saying, yes, I, I want in. I want to go all the way in. I want to go all the way under and in. Immerse me in the Savior and in the sign that portrays what He has done for me. That He's been buried, He's died, and that He's been raised. I want to go into his life and live in his kingdom. He died for the complete forgiveness of all of my sins and was raised in victory over them. And notice too that this, this baptism, or literally immersion, it requires lots of water. I know I'm on my Baptist soapbox again, but it's here in the text, doesn't it? Verse 38, they went down into the water. And I also say immersion when I'm referring to, to baptism, because baptism is not a translation of a Greek word. It's a transliteration of a Greek word into English. Immersion is a translation. That's what it means to baptize. It means to immerse. And those who are baptized, those who are immersed, are those who have been converted. Those who believe. In short, baptism is to follow belief. It's just the way that Jesus taught us to do it in the Great Commission. So in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Who do we baptize? We have baptized disciples, followers, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, baptism comes after conversion. And one of, one of Philip's aims was certainly to see this man converted. It wasn't the only aim. Truly obedience to God, faithfulness to his mission, boldly declaring the truth and the glory of Jesus were also aims in this evangelism. But conversion is also an aim 
of evangelism. Well, we, well, we recognize that right, we as humans, we're not the authors of conversion. We don't have the authority to convert someone. That, all that power belongs to God. God alone converts. Rather, it's our calling to seek, seek men and seek to persuade men and women of the truth of God's word, of His grace and mercy, and the salvation revealed in Jesus Christ. L- listen to what Paul did in Acts chapter 18, verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Listen to what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Brothers and sisters, pray for people to be converted. Proclaim Christ so that, they, so that people may be converted. And persuade them that Christ is willing and able to save them. We've, we've learned that evangelistic initiative begins with God. That it occurs through obedient and bold disciples. And that it is especially aimed at those who are outside of the kingdom of God. We, we've also learned the key ingredients of evangelism are scripture with our contents. Christ as the center of our proclamation as we share the good news. And conversion as an aim. Let's now briefly consider our third and final point. Evangelistic increase. Follow along now as I read verses 39 to 40. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found, him, Philip found himself at Azotus. And, he passed, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. In these two verses, we learn that evangelistic work increases the joy of others. It increases our joy and the number of people hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. After he was baptized, notice the Ethiopian eunuch's reaction. He went on his way rejoicing. Being received into God's kingdom brings rejoicing. I wonder if you've noticed in our study of Acts chapter 8 that everywhere Philip preached and everywhere the good news was received, people were rejoicing. So, after Philip's preaching in Samaria, in Acts 8.8, we read this. So there was much joy in that city. And now we have Ethiopian eunuch who goes on his way, rejoicing. But don't forget what Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 15, verse 10. He said this, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Christian, in your evangelism, You have the privilege of bringing joy to those on earth as well as joy to those in heaven. Though it's not in the text, I dare say that our evangelistic work increases our own joy. I've never heard of anyone whose joy has decreased because they've shared the gospel with someone. I've only heard of brothers and sisters increasing in regret when they've not evangelized. For the joy of your soul, for the joy of others, for the joy of the angels in heaven, and for the joy of our God Share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And notice, Philip, he, he finds himself right at a new place. Uh, Philip did not apparate. He didn't take a, a port key uh, for the Star Trek fans, or maybe I should say the Star Trek fan out there among us. Um, the answer is also no. Philip was not beamed up. He was not teleported to Azotus. That said, Philip was divinely carried by the Spirit of the Lord. To a place some some 20 miles away. This is certainly unusual. Not something we should expect to uh, take place in our own lives. 
Still, this is something that has happened before in the Scriptures. God has miraculously moved a prophet from one place to another. So for fun and for the strengthening of your faith, you can go and scour the book of Kings this afternoon and find when God moves a prophet from one place to another. If you were in um, one of the Sunday school classes, or if your kids were in one of the Sunday school classes, I think it's the, uh, the, the, the preschool class and the lower elementary school class, ask them if you don't know where to find it in the book of Kings. I think they might be able to, to help you with that this morning. But, but God has done this before in, in uh, the course of, of redemptive history. We should understand here that though the gospel is now is going to a, a new region, right? It's been uh, in Samaria. Uh, it's now uh, gone to this, this Ethiopian eunuch. And now Philip is in this place where the, the, the Philistines, a historic enemy of the people of God, lived. So here, God is taking the gospel to, to his enemies. And personally, I, I find that phrase at the beginning of verse 40 uh, somewhat humorous. Suddenly, he, Philip, he finds himself in the city. Uh, the idea is that he suddenly discovers he's at Azotus. And, and what does he do? He keeps going and he keeps preaching the good news about Jesus until he reaches Caesarea. That's likely some 50 miles away from Azotus. And in Caesarea, it's a city established by, by Herod the Great, which had a number of proud citizens that needed to hear the good news about the Lord Jesus. Not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. And as Philip goes more and more people hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. Evangelistic work, it, it actually increases the number of people who hear the good news. So Christian, wherever you find yourself, preach the gospel. Share the gospel. J just think of where the good news of Jesus is going in Acts chapter 8 alone. The good news of Jesus had gone from Jerusalem, through Samaria, and then through the Ethiopian eunuch. The good news of Jesus, it's on its way to Africa. Through Philip, the good news about Jesus has gone to the Philistines and then on to Caesarea. God is sending his gospel out. His message about this Messiah who see, receives sinners into his kingdom is going out. The message of Jesus moves on. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. In Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40, we have learned that the evangelistic initiative, it really begins with the Lord God that occurs through obedient and bold disciples who pursue those who are outside of the kingdom of God. We, we've learned, right, that the key evangelistic ingredients are, are the scriptures. We should use them in our evangelism. We should especially talk about the Lord Jesus Christ in our evangelism. And we should plead with the lost to repent and believe, to be converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've learned that evangelistic joy, evangelistic increase, increases the joy of others, increases our joy, increases the joy of the angels in heaven. Yes, these are the things we should pursue by God's grace. And it strikes me that as we think about evangelism, that we need to keep moving. Have you ever been in a situation where you are, are just so tired, but you know that if you sit down or if you lay down on your bed for just a minute, you're, you're done. You're, you're, you're going to stop. You, so you just think, you're, I just I have to keep moving. I have to keep going till this is done. Well, maybe the same is true about our evangelizing. Maybe when we stop evangelizing, we start fossilizing. So don't, don't sit down in your Christian walk. Keep walking. Stand up and, and speak. And Christian, if you're, if you're discouraged in your evangelism, if you feel defeated and downcast, which I suspect maybe a number of us here this morning, just remember this Ethiopian eunuch. He was far off 
and he was brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember how God welcomed him into the kingdom of his most beloved son. Remember that God has done the same with you. Remember Isaiah 53 and the suffering of the Savior for your sins. Remember Isaiah 56 and that the Lord plans to bring you to his holy mountain. That he will make you joyful in his house of prayer and that he will receive you in. Once you were an outcast and an outsider and now because of Jesus, you're an adopted child of God. The only way that we as a church or you as a Christian will keep evangelizing and therefore keep from fossilizing is if you, is if we, keep our hearts and hopes fixed on the one who is the center of the evangel, the good news, Jesus Christ. If you familiarize yourself with Christ, then you will evangelize for Christ. May God give us such grace. Let's pray together.